Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Literacy Podcast. We are thrilled to have some really special guests today. We have some parent advocates on, and I think this is going to be an incredible episode for educators to hear, but also any parents out there listening who are wondering what's going on at my child's school. We are going to dive into a little microcosm that is a really, really um, good example of what's happening everywhere, uh, or in a lot of places, I should say. So, Melissa, I know uh, we just met our, our new friends <laughs> from MPS. Um, we can't wait to, to talk with them. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I'm, many of our listeners may already know that there's some pretty powerful things happening in Minneapolis, thanks to the advocacy that's going on, or there's momentum, I should say. They'll be able to tell us exactly what's happening, but there's yeah. some momentum out there. So we're excited to hear about the work that they're doing. Yeah. Um, would you all mind introducing yourselves? Just tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, I guess what brought you to this work of advocacy, I should say. <laughs> Sarah, would you mind starting? Sure. My name is Sarah Spafford Freeman. I'm the parent of three Minneapolis public school students. And I came into this work um, after sort of experiencing the roller coaster of our son's dyslexia and dysgraphia diagnosis. Um, he has struggled for years and uh, was on our personal journey and then invited uh, to advocate more broadly or encouraged to advocate more broadly um, by David and then connected with Coolia and formed the MPS Academics Advocacy Organization. So happy to be here and thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to ask Coolia if you would introduce yourself next. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Coolia Pringle. I am the Midwest and Puerto Rico Regional Organizer for National Parents Union, also a Bright Beam activist. And I sort of got into this work um, as a former educator and sort of started doing parent engagement and organizing at the same time and um, just sort of seeing the need as a teacher as well as a parent organizer. Like there was a need for more parent voices and um, more organizing for, and there was a lot of issues, especially for kids that look like me that needed to happen. So I was forced to make a decision between teaching and organizing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And side note, I hope that that takes you to Puerto Rico at some point. <laughs> and David, welcome to the podcast. We'd love to hear, hear a little bit about your story too. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I have, I've got older children um, in the Minneapolis public schools. The literacy thing is interesting. So when we, you know, when my daughter was in, you know, first grade, the teacher kind of pulls us aside and like, hey, she's, she, your, your daughter isn't really reading. And, you know, this is something that you guys need to address. So, you know, we bought a phonics curriculum, did the work, you know, it was a, it was a hard struggle, uh, taught her, you know, daughter to read and kind of didn't really think of, think of that, that whole experience in a broader context of like, this was kind of put on us. Yeah. Um, 
And we ended up transferring, you know, as a part of a, a district reorganization, we were in a, a lower poverty school and we ended up moving into a higher poverty school. And it's interesting when we moved, the parents that transferred with us are like, oh yeah, this, this, this new school really focused on teaching kids to read. Um, so anyway, I, um, you know, I've served on a number of, you know, psych school site councils. I've served on you know, district committees and, you know, we're always, it's always a question like what's going on with, you know, reading and as a parent and an outsider, you're, you're always kind of like trying to figure out what's going on. We had a large, you know, population of, um, immigrant students, primarily Somali at the school. So a lot of the focus that we did was on, you know, building vocabulary and background knowledge. And then we, um, the district tried to bring in a new uh, Morgan Gilliam curriculum. And I kind of got into the, you know, like going back to my daughter, like, you know, here's some foundational skills that so many of these kids are missing. Yeah. Um, so that kind of led into a little bit, you know, bigger advocacy role. Um, committee work is, is hard because it's like there's so many moving targets. And that's kind of when Sarah and I connected and said, you know, let's try and make this a, a little more public um push that's where we are today yeah can I, I just need to pause real quick and say it is insane <laughs> to put that on parents like I, it just doesn't even make sense to me that we're sending like what are we sending kids to school for if the schools then just say it's on the parents to teach them how to read like that just <laughs> sorry I just had to, <laughs> to yeah, comment I on mean, that because it, it blows my mind <laughs> yeah I think you know it's like you know the ladder of reading we have this large percentage of kids that you know kind of figure it out and then we got these kids that don't and I don't know that we're totally set up to help with a lot of those kids not at all and I also I wanted to share that this is not something that is specific to you all, um, as we all know, but just for listeners out there, you know, I was at, um, I was over, I wanted to share a little story that I was at a friend's house, uh, this past Sunday and, uh, the, I, I met a mom who was talking about her daughter and how she was a struggling reader, how they just had parent teacher conferences and the teacher basically shared exactly what you just, uh, shared with us, David, like, the, the daughter is struggling. The other daughter's teacher shared that she's, you know, middle of the road, but she's not, you know, an, an active reader that can comprehend easily, that can read the word words easily. And the mom was like, well, what do I do? And the answer was, well, just keep reading to her. Just keep reading to her. She'll, she'll pick it up. They'll pick it up. And I ran into this mom and she was in tears at, you know, uh, where we were. Um, and it shouldn't have to be that way. You know, it shouldn't have to be that I'm like, give me your information. I'll send you information about, um, what you can do as a parent, because we really, really, really need our schools to be servicing children. And I, I think that that is really where you all are at too. Like you've probably had a million experiences like the one that I just described and, um, are at the end of the, the rope and, really that started your advocacy work. So um, I'm curious where you all want to start. Do you want to start at the beginning or do you want to do it like a Tarantino movie and start like this week and then we can wheel back? Like, cause Tarantino, I feel like some really- Sarah, Sarah is jumping at the bit for Tarantino style. I I, well, <laughs> and, and this, you know, this week's superintendent, you know, the vote that occurred last week yeah. um, around the superintendent, I, I think- um, is both very Tarantino-esque and, 
um, and a valuable, uh, place to start in terms of, um, where, you know, where we're focused from here and, and what accountability could and should look like in these, in these efforts. I love that. Okay. So let's start right now. Like what is happening in your district right now? What's happening with advocacy? Um, I know there was a pretty interesting headline this week. So who, <laughs> who wants to take it on? I mean, I can just uh, say a little bit. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, one thing is, uh, you know, a superintendent job is a difficult job. You're, you're tasked with a million things. Um, and, you know, you go to any board meeting and there's going to be, you know, 10 people lined up to tell you what you should be doing, you know, what you should be fixing today. Yeah. Um, the, the district had, or the board had four priorities for the district. One of those was, was literacy. So um, that was the area that the board board felt that the superintendent, you know, had an area of weakness. And the board really did not communicate, you know, beyond one board member um, why they voted the way they did. But it was a five to four vote. Um, one board member indicated that she was upset with literacy and she had communication from the community. But the rest were silent as to how they voted. Um, so it's, um, I think it's a, uh, kind of a little bit of a wake up call for our community that this is, it's, it's kind of putting, I think literacy front and center a little bit, um, where I think it, it needs to be academics, um, has always kind of played second fiddle to a lot of areas in the district. We constantly are reshuffling our boundaries you know, for various reasons. I mean, some reasons are legit based on enrollment and the integration factors. Um, but it's, um, the district, we need to spend some time on the academics in our district. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm I just, oh, I just gonna, I, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I just want to ground yeah. us in the reality in, in Minneapolis quickly, because yes, I think it, yes. it reflects a lot of, especially urban K-12 school districts in the Absolutely. U.S. Minneapolis, like a lot of cities, is segregated along clear lines. In, in Minneapolis, the axis mm -hmm. is north-south. Mm -hmm. um, Northwest Minneapolis is um, a, a community, predominantly a community of color. Uh, South Minneapolis is mostly white. The, the city of Minneapolis is about 70% white, but the school district is nearly 70% kids of color, highlighting the extent of white yeah. flight and disenrollment from the district. And private school Half, enrollment, I'm sure. And, and private school enrollment, absolutely. Half of Minneapolis public school students don't read at grade level. Half of Black and American Indian students read two or more grade levels behind. The educational debt in Minneapolis was estimated by ProPublica to be four grade levels on average between white students and students of color. So we're talking about significant disparities that have existed before the pandemic, before mm -hmm. Superintendent Ed Graff was, was at the helm. Um, and to David's earlier point, that, that can has been consistently kicked down the road. Minneapolis uses a balanced literacy uh, curriculum prohibited for use in a growing number of states and yeah. interventions that mirror that 
um, that flawed approach. And we find ourselves kind of at this point in, in Minneapolis where I think momentum is growing around some simple but significant tools um, rooted in the science of reading and, and sort of evidence-based practice. Um, but we've got a superintendent who dismissed all of that as a philosophical debate um, mm-hmm. and it has, has sort of dug in. And so our advocacy, you know, more than a year long, I think culminated in last week's, um, you know, vote on the superintendent's contract renewal. Um, You know, they voted to renew, but our fight continues and our fight isn't with the superintendent, but um, candidly, he's, he's in the way of progress right now. So if, if folks don't want to partner, you know, you try to partner first and collaborate and push. And, you know, when that doesn't work, it, it becomes a little Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> that you, you just said, answered the exact question I was going to ask, which was like the ultimate goal that you all have is not to necessarily just get rid of this superintendent, yeah. right? That's not <laughs> where you all are trying to get to. It's just like, I think you just said it perfectly of like, he's just kind of in the way of the goal at the moment. And so that was a significant sign of some movement towards progress. Yeah. Our first, and, our first and, conversation with this superintendent was really like, this is, you know, this is a, a broader, this is a nationwide con- conversation. Like you could be a, a leader in this. And really, I mean, I, I don't think it's too late for that. I mean, there's, um, you know, we have, you know, significant, you know, federal dollars coming in. Um, I think there's a little wake up call. So I think there's this opportunity for Minneapolis to say, Hey, you know what? Okay. Let's reset here. And, um, Let's, let's, let's dig into this. Yeah. Coolia, did you want to add? I know you had uh, started to say something. Yeah. And I was just going to say a lot of the ways that, you know, he's been in the way, not a lot of the ways, but ways that he, I mean, if, (laughs) I don't know, it's just like, he's, he's stepping over his own foot with some of the things that he's done. Like um, David said earlier, um, his, main thing when he got renewed this last time was literacy. Like that was one of the thing. And up until now, we don't have a literacy plan. They put together a literacy framework and was going to call that a plan. So it was a plan to get a plan. It was going to vote on it. <laughs> and, you know, like uh. just hope that it was just going to fly by the seat. And then that was it. Um, that was one mishap. And then it was, you know, our, our state, uh, Minnesota Department of Education says that if over 20% of your readers need reading interventions, um, you have a core curriculum problem. So we asked the district, you know, how many students, right. So they're not keeping track of that. It's, it's in the spreadsheet at each individual school. So that's another obstacle. It's like, why wouldn't you get the data to find out if you have a core curriculum problem? The other issue is they just hired under the superintendent's tenure. They had an interim academic senior officer for two, three years and just hired her two months ago. And then, so now she's coming in with this new whatever it is. And it's like, oh, well, I can't say whether or not our curriculum or our professional development isn't working because I don't have the data to show that. So now I'm in, in, I'm saying that everybody needs to do it. And then I'll, you know, find out if benchmark and press isn't working. So again, it's like he's, you know what I mean? Like he's standing in the way of progress by these yeah few things that could have been happened and hasn't happened with the literacy plan and, you know, how many students are receiving interventions and then the senior academic officer. So it's just, 
It's like, yeah. you, need, you know, something this, needs to happen. Especially if you're putting add, literacy as a priority. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if you're naming that, yeah. I mean, one thing to add, too, to that is, you know, we did not have a literacy curriculum prior to his being here. Mm. And then now half the teachers weren't even using the curriculum that we had. So we, we buy a $10 million curriculum. Half the teachers aren't even using it. So now here we are three or four years later and it's like, okay, now we need to implement this. Then we need to see if it works. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so when it's we've just this, it's this long road. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think one of the challenges have, has been that when we've, we're not identifying the same problems, right? Like we have repeatedly highlighted the literacy curriculum as, as a challenge. Um, you know, my youngest, especially because of distance learning, um, I got to see the curriculum for my dyslexic son and, you know, my kindergartner last year up close and in practice. And when we've tried to identify or, or just ask, is the curriculum a problem? Um, you know, the, the response has been, well, we haven't even fully implemented it yet. So, so we can't identify that as a problem. Wait, after four um, years, after four, four years. years, after well, they four haven't, years. they haven't fully implemented it yet, Lori. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that even mean? That's interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, like you would walk into some, I mean, people would walk into classrooms and they're, the, you know, the saran wrap is still on these things. Yeah. Can you and, mind and if and I ask like, like, is it, what curriculum? Do you mind if I ask? It's Are you allowed bench, to say? Yeah. Oh, we'll it's say bench, you can ask. Benchmark, <laughs> yeah, benchmark, benchmark advanced. Yeah. Which is balanced and, literacy. And I was told Correct. by the balanced senior. Literacy, yeah. yeah, I was told by the senior academic officer that teachers were, she was making a, a you know, a joke as not a joke, but she was trying to say like how bad it was. But she was saying that teachers were literally just using their neighbor's lesson plan. Like it was a free for all and everybody was doing what they wanted to do. But now you know, half the Title I schools are being trained on benchmark next year. The other half will be trained. And then, you know, then we can assess if it's working or not. Is it like, so is it like the train has left the station? And, and there, I guess I'm just wondering, like, after four, I mean, I feel like after four years of not seeing progress, you would press yeah. pause, right? And also if literacy is an initiative, is it is it like the train has left the station and it's too or too far gone or we spent all this money? I think it's the sunk yes. cost. Yeah. You know, they they spent the money um, you know, having having failed to implement it in 4 years seems like malpractice from, you know, <laughs> where I'm sitting as a parent, but now they want more time. And I think a theme in all of these conversations, especially when you're pushing for a a district that's majority kids of color, like when white gatekeepers are saying we need more time, um, that should be a red flag for every advocate and ally out there that, (laughs) that, that it, you know, things aren't good. And our district keeps, whether it's in renewing Superintendent Graff's contract, when to Coolia's point, we've never had a literacy plan under his tenure, or whether saying four years into a new curriculum, we just need more time to implement it fully before we can assess its efficacy in classrooms. You know, it's all, it's all 
that should raise a red flag when more time is the prescription being offered to these issues. And there is no way on God's green earth if 73% of the district's children were white. <laughs> that we would not, yeah. It, it would be okay to have more time and more time yeah. and more time. Yeah. Right. Our kids quote, continue to fail. Yeah, Kareem Weaver, who is... Um, we're familiar, yeah. But, but frame yeah, it yeah. for people Act- who are listening who are not familiar. Yeah, Oakland, <laughs> Oakland NAACP activist who's taken on, um, uh, you know, advocating for literacy. You know, he had a good point about curriculum. You know, I, I we, we kind of really turned to his work because he's um, really thoughtful person who's kind of figured this out. But he just tweeted the other day, you know, in terms of like curriculum select- selection, and this is a big problem with ours is that you know he said find programs with verifiable results for students that match yours and then two find which can be fully implemented within the teacher's contract the curriculum we have is you know very difficult to use it's it's um it's too much and there's a massive i mean and you're seeing that i mean that's why you're you're getting a lot of pushback it's it's too hard to implement and it's not being implemented yeah, I actually no. just looked it up too on Ed Reports. Melissa, were you doing that too? Yeah. Um, I can see you. I was like, I'm, I know what she's doing. Um, and the, the, the big weakness in the curriculum um, that I just like very quickly noted while you were talking is building knowledge, which is a critical component, especially for students who are not having experiences outside of school or who may not be having, I don't want to you know, make an an assumption, but who may not be having experiences outside of school, regardless though, we know it's what's good for all students. This is what reminds me of dyslexia so much, right? We know those decoding um, skills are necessary for all students, but they really are necessary for students with dyslexia. But also on the other end of the spectrum, building knowledge is good for all students, but it's especially good for students who are not getting those experiences outside of the classroom. So there's just so many parallels and, and we're choosing a curriculum for, um, you know, in an environment that seems like they may need a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, something different. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. We're not going to disagree. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering about, I mean, I'm assuming you all think like, even, even if we needed to have four more years to implement this curriculum, do you all think this is the right one? No. no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a curriculum expert. But. No. Can you can you elaborate for our audience about why this is not what what you would want and what you would well, want to see I instead? Go, go to the you know go to the Facebook group, the Science of Reading. What I have learned mm-hmm. in college, and type in Benchmark Advance and look at what the teachers say about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, well, don't take. I mean, I, don't take my word as a parent. You know, take the word yeah. of the the teachers who are trying to use it. Hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Or or take my word as a parent. You know, I've, <laughs> or take I've watched, word as a parent. I've worth, watched this curriculum. You know, our our son, who's now in fourth grade, was diagnosed with dyslexia and dysgraphia um, in second grade, and I watched him fake his way through kindergarten and first grade because of the presence of pictures yeah. and the focus put on three queuing and, and repetitive texts rather than decodable texts. Mm-hmm. And I knew that whole time that he couldn't read, he couldn't yeah. spell, he couldn't write, he couldn't read and was, was asking questions and, and pushing and, you know, being told he's just a boy, 
He's right where he should be. He's fine. And then in second grade, um, he, we were lucky that he had a teacher, a, a really experienced teacher who understood the role of phonics and phonemic awareness and recognized in Jack that he was dyslexic. And he, he did a full assessment in second grade um, where it wasn't just letter sounds and letter names and sight words that he could sort of memorize, even though he didn't know. Um, Mm -hmm. And the wheels came off and all of a sudden he was in the sixth percentile and the school was saying, go have him assessed for dyslexia. When he was diagnosed, the only prescription we were given was to find a tutor trained in the science of reading um, and, you know, maybe an Orton Gillingham, you know, we were given specific sort of training and curricula and models to look for. And I watched this story repeat itself with our youngest, who was a kindergartner last year, mm-hmm. had school almost entirely online, struggled to form those foundational mm-hmm. skills. And we were wondering, is she also dyslexic? Um, but separating the signal from the noise with a curriculum that doesn't focus on these foundational skills is tough. My my two youngest are now at a school this year um, in Minneapolis, a new school, and it's a partner school with a local private school called Groves Academy that's a leader in um, curricula and instruction and training around literacy. And so at her parent-teacher conference Tuesday, I got her typical, you know, her typical district assessment which showed her in the red zone in the 17th percentile, which would have flashed red engine, you know, red lights had it been the only information I was given. But luckily because of the Groves partnership at their new school, she was also given a a simpler assessment that was able to identify that she struggles with three specific digraphs, but otherwise is right where she should be. And that information was so simple and yet revolutionary to have. It was the first parent-teacher conference I left in seven years of doing them where I had truly actionable information for my kid. And importantly, so did her teacher. Yep. (laughs) And that's, that's just so critical and so lacking at most schools in the district. We have these little pilot programs, but more broadly, parents going to conferences this week are just getting those fast test scores. And I just want to go ahead, Kalee. I was just going to say, I just want to add, you know, Sarah, you know, is an, you know, what, you know, she's a parent that's knowledgeable. She's a parent that, you know, can, you know, knows these you know, things and resources that are she can have give to her child and then has the resources to give her kids these. Yeah. Now you take this for the masses amount of parents in her school, because Sarah has, is now in a school where majority of the kids are black. It is a, you know, a bottom 5% school in the state of Minnesota. It is a low performing school. Um, and you, 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 you say, you know, some of the parents of the the kids that Sarah, uh, where Sarah's kid goes to may not have 
graduated from high school, right. may not have been given the foundation of reading, don't know what to recognize and what not to recognize. They're putting their kids into the hands of this system that, you know, they're assuming is going to teach their kid how to read. And then if they don't, then, you know, they're going to let them know there's something wrong. Like that's, you know, Sarah's story is not like the norm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the majority well, and of it, parents that look like me are not aware of anything. And so the cycle just continues. Yeah. And the cultural capital required to advocate for your kids yeah. in, in this environment I know. is, is, you know, outrageous. And to Coolia's point, like I, I left Ingrid, you know, my daughter's conference reassured, um, but frustrated and sad at the same time, because so many, com- so many conferences didn't go like that. So many parents to Coolia's point weren't leaving with, with information that they could use to advocate for their kid or even understand where their kid is at. And so it's incumbent upon schools to be able to do this so that parents don't have to have, you know, graduate degrees to understand yeah. what's going on with their kid and advocate for them. Right. Or money to pay for tutors. Like, yeah. right. Exactly. exactly. And I was just going to say, even, as, even in Baltimore here, I, at the, when I was at the district level, was advocating for better assessments for teachers because even as a teacher, I would get, well, here's your kids who are one grade level below. Here are the ones that are two or three. Here are the ones that are four and five. And I'm like, well, that doesn't do any, like, doesn't tell a teacher anything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where are they struggling? Are they struggling? <laughs> Where yeah. are their gaps? Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of those assess, you know, there's, there's an admiring the problem problem yes. um, that crops up and, you know, tools exist to help us around that corner, right. To actually, you know, assessing students in a way that helps parents, helps teachers, right. Those tools exist. Um, they're just not broadly adopted. And in Minneapolis, there's, you know, from the superintendent's office, at least there's a real resistance to them, even as we pilot them in a, you know, a few buildings. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned earlier, um, and I can't remember who mentioned it, was keeping student. I think it might have been you, Sarah, is um, amidst all of these adult things happening, right? Keeping students at the center and doing what's best for, for kids and for children always. Um, and there's an urgency in that. But there, I mean, your story is resonates so deeply with me as well, because in my child's district, they just adopted uh, Lucy Calkins this past year. And to me, it was just like a shot through the heart. I'm like, this is, there's like, Coolia, I'm looking at your, uh, your quote from the 74 article. <laughs> and you're like, they have major millions of dollars. They need to get a literacy plan that's based on the science of reading. They need to get a literacy <laughs> curriculum that's based on the science of reading. And so I think like what, when you said students at the center, what that says to me is like, you know, my kids district just adapted this too. I feel exactly what you're feeling. And I, the same kind of issues are, you know, arising here. Like the, um, some of the teachers who I know are telling me like the, the literacy director wears a shirt. That's like, I love Lucy. And I'm just like, this is not about adults and like who we like or what we think is best. We should be heading to science and thinking, what is science telling us about what's best for kids? And sometimes that might mean setting aside 
our own personal beliefs and, and being willing and open to try something new. Um, be, and, and just like science is, is always changing and growing, but there are some core beliefs that we know and we've learned that are true and we can only grow to make them better. So like, I just, I'm curious about what you've done to, uh, if you could share a little bit about what you've all done to advocate so far, because I feel like you're very active. You have a beautiful website that is such a great resource for parents. So say there's a parent or a teacher in a situation that I just described. What, like, what can we do? That's yeah, a really, not, that's really big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like we're everything. Not, <laughs> yeah. We're not, I don't think we're at like helping parents. That's not what we're trying. I mean, I think, you know, we can, we're, we're trying to advocate for broader changes to the system. Yeah. 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 So yeah. If like a parent said, Hey, I, my kids just, you know, I'm not, I don't have like a list of tutors I can hand out. Is that what you're no. asking or what are you? No, I think I'm thinking like, what, what, what did you do in your advocacy journey? Like what have you all done that you felt like has really helped put some boots on the ground in your space? Sorry for that clarification. Yeah. I mean, I think just, you know, that I think the whole thing is trying to create boots on the ground to your point. I've used that now kind of analogy before because <laughs> it just, there's so, you know, we are a, a performative city, like, um, someone found some books in a dumpster and, you know, like the whole city gets worked, you know, a school was cleaning out at the end of the year, they threw out some old books and like the whole city gets worked up about, about this, where we have this huge reading gap. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> like literacy is a very complex subject and yeah. we need to, I think, educate people around this and make them comfortable saying, all right, this is a space I can advocate in or I can push on, or I can ask my school board member, like, what are we doing about this? Yeah. Or is that, I mean, personally, like I felt like I can't really, I'm not an expert in the classroom and I would say I'm still not an expert in the classroom and I feel uncomfortable in this space. So I think it's trying to get people comfortable enough to start asking questions and pushing the district to make this a priority, make space well, for this conversation. And I, I think it's also, um, the work we've done to center student outcomes and experiences, um, you know, to your earlier point, Lori, about um, the tendency to put um, the, the feelings of adults before the outcomes of students is, is really, you know, that's, uh, that happens a lot, right? And I think one of the things we've done is try to center folks on ground folks in the reality of our district. You know, a lot of people just aren't aware of how broad and deep these issues are. <laughs> Inform them about the national conversation and trends and themes, you know, happening in other districts and states, but then also empower them um, to, to, to have sort of a path to follow, to advocate both in their child's school, but at the district more broadly. You know, Coolia has helped parents write letters to the editor. Coolia has, you know, handed out information and ensured that parents have access to both the information, but also the actions they can take to push for better. So I do, you know, I do think um, there's a model 
to follow in, in what we're doing. And we're just following the model of people like Kareem Weber and the Oakland NAACP and Fulcrum and, you know, Memphis Lift and Nashville Propel. Like there are, there are so many, I think, parent, um, black parent organizers out there doing really good work that is providing a model for parents and people in other cities and districts to follow. Mm-hmm. And I would just say um, all three of us have different advocacy styles and how we approach the district. And so I think that helps, you know, sometimes we do good guy, bad guy. Um, you know. <laughs> we do a lot of, we do a lot of that. And yes. <laughs> We'll let when, uh, when, Melissa when and Rory guess. You know, I'm not going there. <laughs> Sarah and Dave would write a nice letter. You know, hi, you know, we'd like to get this. And I'll say, hey, I'll show up with 20 parents at your door. Give me what we what we need. You know, meet with me now. You know what I mean? So, we, you know, having different advocacy styles so you can come at different ways. So it's not just one way that you're, 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 you're doing helps. Yes. Like How do you that. want your salsa? Mild, medium, or hot? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was actually thinking of saying it like a multifaceted approach, but I like yours yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's the importance of having a broad coalition, right? Like we, yeah. we could not have gotten to a 5-4 vote on whether to renew the superintendent's contract if... Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't pressure coming from a lot of directions and constituencies. And I think that's, you know, go collaborate in an intentionally inclusive way and you will marvel at the mountains you can, you can push in the right direction. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Cause Lori like wrote a letter, right. But like, they're just able to be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's just delete. one parent. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Delete. Delete. They did actually well, respond, but that d- it didn't matter. I mean, we basically yeah. were like, yeah. "Yes, we know about all this research, and we chose this anyway." Thank you so much for your inquiry. Right. I'm like, I it's disheartening, and, then, and it feels you feel like you're alone. You know, it feels like yeah. you're alone in this journey. And that was Coolia, what, what, you was know, your, what was your what was your email, Coolia? Oh. From the from the from the teacher. Yeah. Oh, well, she um, saw, I think, one of the um, the articles that uh, that was, you know, that you all saw. Mm -hmm. And she wrote, I wish I would. This is from a teacher. I wish I would have met all the Minneapolis science of reading literacy for all activists before we left Minneapolis. I quit my job with the district and withdrew my three boys feeling frustrated alone in this fight. You, Sarah and David, have been such an inspiration. Thank you all for your work. So who knows how many teachers like her have left in frustrating trying to advocate by themselves on the inside for science of reading. Well, and MPS's own data show, you know, white flight from the district has been an issue, but but it's it's black families leaving the district. That's the bigger issue. And MPS's own data show that 80% of those Black families who've left MPS cited academics as the number one reason they left. Yeah. So Black parents have been saying this 
for a long time. And I want to name that we're finally getting attention when white parents have joined the mix. Like that's, that's a blessing and a curse of, of this work and this group. And I want to, I want to name that explicitly, but like black parents have been saying this for a long time and just leaving the district for something better because, you know, MPS and lots of districts won't, won't move or listen when it's black families advocating for their black kids. And I would, I would add our immigrant families are now are leaving too. We've lost about a third of our immigrant families in the last, you know, five or six years. And a lot of, a lot of our community aren't able to say, or weren't able to say like, you know, using the term, the science of reading, we just knew our kids weren't learning how to read and our teachers weren't listening and we weren't getting the help. So we just went to other districts or to a charter school or homeschooled or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Um, And then I think you all brought up too, like, you know, it's raining money on K-12 right now. And Sarah, can you talk about how much Minneapolis Public Schools is going to put on, put in literacy on how much money that we're receiving? Mm. Yeah. Do we even want to know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, so uh, we did the math. Um, MPS, (laughs) like a lot of districts, um, had a board meeting last month where the district proposed and the board approved a a plan to spend its ESSER $3.00. MPS is getting more than $160 million in in ESSER three funds, and they are going to spend 1% of it on literacy-specific tools, efforts, initiatives. 1% sorry. And their priority. We're checking the expense. And it's it's one of their- Still a priority. Stated priorities where the superintendent's own evaluation graded him as, you know, developing, which is just a nice way of saying, like, you haven't done this yet. Um, And so one one percent of dollars is is going to be spent on literacy um, in a district where half of kids don't read at grade level. And within that one percent, a third of those dollars are to pilot uh, the Groves partner, uh, the Groves Academy partner uh, program at three of, you know, the whitest schools in the district, in a district that's majority oh. kids of color. And so, you know, it's just, it doesn't reflect stated academic goals or stated equity and inclusivity values, right? Um and, and I think, you know, we've seen other districts approach these federal dollars in a, in a very different manner. Um, the, the state legislature, in, in related news, the state legislature in Minnesota in June um, passed a bill providing $3 million in grant money for letters training. Mm-hmm. Um, MPS is not going to pursue those grants, nor are they going to spend $1 on professional development rooted in the science of, of reading for MPS teachers. They are doing some vendor training, um, which is a different, a very different thing than, than PD, right? So it's, it's just one of many ways where um, what, we, what MPS says and what they do um, are, are divergent. I don't, I don't even have words. <laughs> I mean, 
We have lots of work. Uh. Coolia, Coolia has uh, some great graphics oh gosh. Uh, and memes we're sharing. But yeah, it's oh, just, I want to see those. You know the the simple um, what we think are non controversial steps that could be taken um, by a district with the reality MPS spaces aren't being taken. And I think that's, you know, the, the frustration and it begins at the top and going back to what Lori said about, you know, adult feelings being centered, our advocacy has prompted board members to yell at us. uh, Board members to say they're going to delete future emails from us. Um, you know, teachers to feel criticized and, and sensitive. I woke up this morning to a, an email from a teacher who felt, you know, criticized and called out by a post I had praising the Groves partnership. Um, and so these adult feelings are, are being centered once again, while they ignore the content of all of our advocacy and asks. We had um, uh, dyslexia. There's a new law in the state of Minnesota requiring schools to screen students for the characteristics of dyslexia. Um, Grades K3. And so that's being now reported to the state. Um, We still have questions about how MPS kind of did this. But they flagged 42% of that's the what I read. third graders. Yes, I read that. And that's not been so we had we had to request this data. We had another parent um, from our community, our advocate advocacy community, you know, go to the state to request this. Um, the district did not share this with us after you know a, a data request. But this should be part of our conversation to have, you know, you flagged 42% of your kids for basically dyslexia. I mean, that's... And, and you only tested, you said K through three. Correct. Right. So that's almost half of students in primary yeah, grades. Kin- yeah. Kindergarten was half. It was 50%. Well, and, and, it, and it, it goes back to what I was saying, you know, about my kids' parent-teacher conference, not to, not to bring yeah. it back to me, but like, separating this, I think the Sarah these stories the are important yeah the stories yeah, well, are important because it, it it shows what we're talking about so yeah yeah and I think you know the my daughter's fast assessment which is um we don't know what tool the district you know used to measure or to capture this 42 percent but I we suspect do. it was probably yeah. fast is it was it, it is fast? fast okay yeah. so my yeah. daughter's my daughter's fast score identified her as having characteristics of dyslexia, right? She's in the red zone. She's in the Mm -hmm. 17th percentile. But her Groves assessment performed by the teacher and not timed, you know, there's downsides of all these assessments. The, The Groves assessment clearly identified for us that she doesn't know SH, CH, and TH. And other than that, she's right where she should be. And the, 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 that signal versus those noise is critically important. Right. And, and it, it should ideally these assessments should all be informing and guiding instruction in the classroom. You know, her Groves assessment did that the teacher knows which digraphs her students are struggling on. 
the fast assessment just indicate, you know, is a, is a blinking red light, but it tells you nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like what's actionable versus what is just like waving a red flag around, you know, like these are really tangible, actionable next steps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we over, we over test these, we over test Mm -hmm. these kids too. Right. So like, Oh my God, don't, you know, like, can we eliminate half these, half these assessments, especially in the early years by more effectively distinguishing which ones give us actionable information mm-hmm. and which don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of this reminds me of, I'm, I keep coming back to this. Um, I, we talked to a few people from Unbound Ed and they, they, they kindly asked me to not use the term struggling readers um, because it puts it on the students, right? It puts it on them. Like, like there's something wrong with the students, but in fact, it's students who didn't receive the proper reading instruction. And this just keeps reminding me of that, right? It's like 42% of your students <laughs> do not have characteristics of dyslexia, right? They're not receiving the instruction that they need. Yeah, right. And you have to be able to say that without teachers being triggered by it. Right. In right. order to Correct. affect it positively, right? Correct. And And... You know, it's that, um, and we've talked to, I want to just say that we have talked to dozens of, you know, many, many teachers who have approached these conversations with humility and insight and, Mm -hmm. and have been the ones identifying these deficiencies in both training, curricula, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of teachers fighting the good fight. Mm -hmm. Um, but we, we tried to get our local teachers union, you know, to put out a statement in support of, of letters training. Um, and it was voted down by the executive board. Um, and and we've tried other ways to sort of push through the uncomfortable feelings adults get in these conversations, but it keeps, you know, it comes back to that too often. Yeah. Well, listen, I are very honest on this podcast. Like, I am between undergrad master's and my post master's leadership certificate. I received no science of reading training and my master's was in reading. In wow. reading. Yeah. yeah. And then like, I mean, you know, as a teacher, you can see that, right? Like I, I have all this training that I think is what, what it's supposed to be. Right. Why would I think otherwise? Or would I question? Yes. It? And then I'm given a curriculum. <laughs> that I'm told is what's supposed to happen. You know, why would I question that? So you can see why right. they get there, but you're right. I mean, it's still, we, we have and to. Then it, and then it just sort of, like you said, puts the, you know, for, for a family or a parent, you know, they put their kids into this building. Like I said, that's fully, yep. you know, that's everybody's getting paid. All these professionals, all these people went to school, you know, they should know all these things. And then when their kid comes home and can't read, it's, it's, oh, well, your kid is a struggling reader. Oh, well, you know, maybe you're, you know, poverty and single parent yeah. homes and black read, read to them more. Okay. Yeah. All these other things come up and it's just like, wow, I've, you know, I've, I guess I've, I've, you know, had a different experience in school where I always thought they're, you know, Minnesota and other 
systems or education systems that I've been through didn't have an issue because I was one of those readers and my daughter was too, that didn't struggle. Like we were going to get it regardless. So um, in my head, I was like, oh yeah, I got taught how to read and I had to learn. No, you taught yourself how to read. Um, (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, But just, yeah, I just, I get frustrated when I hear it's, it's just easier. It seems like in this system, to put the, to take the responsibility off of the people that has the education and, and all of the things in order to, to, to make it happen. It goes back to the person that, you know, doesn't have that experience. Yeah. Like parent, all the parent, I always tell parents, like all you can do at home is read to your kid. Like if you, you don't, you shouldn't be asked to do more than that. Right. It's <laughs> like, if you don't know the science of reading, like how would you know how to teach your kid how to read? Right. Well, and and there's such a tendency to Coolia's point when these instructional deficits are demonstrated by kids um, or reflected by kids. Mm -hmm. There's a tendency in districts like Minneapolis to blame poverty and blame parents. Yeah. And I think of our experience um, as, as an exception because they had to believe me that, that my son was struggling and they couldn't blame it on poverty or perceived parental deficits, right? Yep. They, 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 they didn't have those scapegoats to mm-hmm. go to. And so my experience with teachers, principals, you know, the district, I know has been different than lots of parents who, who tried to do this, you know, fight the same fight. And that like those um, those undertones and influences can't be overstated. Um, it can't be overstated. Yeah, the typical path. Yeah, the typical path for someone like Sarah is you just pull your kid out. Right. And, yeah. you know, and then you complain at the cocktail party. Oh, now we're at this <laughs> private school because my kid couldn't read. Right. Um. And we have dozens of testimonials like this. These, you know, affluent parents have just basically given up, pulled their kids out, and they're finding, you know, places that are going to focus on the, the giving the kids the kid the tools they need. And for kids that don't have the the wealth or the the, the advantages, it's they're in a different place. And that's who we have they to have no advocate choice. for. Yeah, they don't have a choice. And um, then, you know, culturally, you know, a lot of the immigrant communities come from, you know, countries where, you know, we just had a, another podcast when one of the Latina parents, like your kid doesn't get promoted if, you know, if they're not at second grade, they're not going to get promoted to third grade. And, you know, culturally in the U S you know, we just keep promoting kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of cultural differences that we have to address as well. That's a really good point. Yeah. One of the things I feel like, um, I just think it's important to name that like this comes out in different ways. Like as you were speaking, I feel like sometimes parents say things like, instead of saying, you know, this isn't the science of reading, they'll say something's not right. I can just tell something's not right with my child. Something's not right with school, but it, it, it may not come out 
in terms of like eloquently saying this is a struggle with science-based or evidence-based <laughs> or structured literacy practices. Um, and it honestly, it shouldn't have to. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't, we shouldn't be expected right. to know that. <laughs> right. Like Cooley said, read, you know, read that's to your kids. That's what parents should do. And then, and then even when you say it, even when you have that language and, and <laughs> access it, then you're told, but you're not an educator. You're a parent, like stay in your lane. Um, a good so point. It, it's, it's like, there's, there's apparently no good way to advocate for better student reading outcomes. And that's another just standard issue practice of white gatekeepers and positions of power, right? Like it's, that's textbook. You know, it's so funny, Sarah. I always remember like as a teacher, I feel like too, like we were told that like, even if we complained as teachers, they're not really going to listen to us. But if parents complain, then they'll listen. <laughs> yeah, they won't. They'll tell you you're not so teachers. Funny. You're not a teacher. You that know, makes like, so much sense. It, it's really just like, we're not listening to any of you. We're just yeah, making just it's a reality. cycle. Yeah. Uh, we well, had a good interview is... with Terry Lucas Hall. And she, um, really insightful as a teacher and an educator who is now a tutor. And she's been doing the letters training and she's just like, this is something that every teacher needs. You know, 100%. we need to be, yeah, we need to open our eyes to the, you know, she's, you know, she goes back and reflects on the children that she's, you know, failed to serve. And she's like, I, we need to do better for these kids. Yeah. I just did letters last year, <laughs> 20 years into my, <laughs> my yeah. career. Yeah. And, and it was the most I learned about how to teach reading. Yeah. Well, and I'm so struck by the teachable moment too many educators are avoiding. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I'm really, you know, and again, before I get the hate mail from teachers, lots of <laughs> teachers are, thank you. We appreciate you. We see you, but like, you know, our superintendent who was an elementary teacher before going into administration, um, ha has just, um, denied that there's a teachable moment here. Yeah. Um, and in doing so sort of minimized 30 years of, of growing evidence, right. Of certain practices, efficacy. Um, and it just, I, I guess I marvel at a bunch of educators avoiding a teachable moment. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't mm -hmm. not name that. Yeah. There's so much opportunity to be had. And I think, really the students are the ones who are missing out. And so we, we, ha we have to do this work because our kids need us. So I think on that note, I, I just want to say thank you to you all. Um, and I also would love to ask you to, we always ask our, our uh, guests to leave listeners with a piece of advice. So whoever would like to go first, sharing with our listener base who are educators, from teachers, all the way up through school district leaders. We'd love to ask you and invite you to leave a piece of advice for our friends listening. Mine is simple. This is Pulia Pringle. Um, there's no such thing as other people's children. And I'll end with that. 
fuck, I can't follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, Coolio, you have to laugh. Coolio, you're gonna you're gonna say it again at the end. How about that? You right, you, wrap right. you wrap us. You wrap us. We'll come right back to you. Yeah, I th- you know trust trust your instinct to the parents. Yeah. Um, tr- just trust your instincts. You know, I knew something was up with my son when he was three and couldn't form words yet. Yeah. yeah. And it took me until he was almost nine to have a name and a story for it. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, tr- trust your instincts. And teachers too, Sarah, Not, you know, yeah, I know absolutely. You parents, but like teachers absolutely. feel that. T- I mean, I remember being yep. in the classroom being like, this, this doesn't feel something's right. right with not yeah. right with this. Yeah. Like, how can I help this kid more? And I didn't have the tools, but I knew something was off. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I reflect on, um, you know, a testimonial that I received from a teacher about, you know, a student who was uh, acting out in the classroom, you know, at the lowest level. And she just received, you know, a, a you know, a, maybe a couple of weeks of, you know, Orton Gillingham instruction and it changed her life. You know, they, the, the teacher went, this is like a literacy specialist went back the following year and this, this girl had just completely blossomed. Yeah. And I, I guess I, my work is fine, you know, is, is trying to find these kids that um, have so much potential and that we're not, we're not letting them blossom. Absolutely. And so for me, again, there yeah. is no <laughs> thing as other people's children, para los niños, para todos los niños, for all the kids. <laughs> Love it. Thank you all so much. You are doing amazing, amazing work. I know that maybe it doesn't feel that way when you're getting those emails from people or <laughs> people aren't yeah, listening, but, um, I guess it, you know, if parents out there, the advice is like, you've got to, you know, districts and superintendent boards have a million, you know, issues going on and you've got to build a, a constituency that's going to advocate yeah. on this, on this topic. Cause there's something new every day. And then there's something new on the superintendent's plate every day. That's, that can feel like a higher priority than addressing the fact that, you know, we have so many kids that are struggling to read in, yeah. in our city. And it's, it's difficult to have these conversations. Like, I, I feel like talking about this is a, akin to saying something like cancer or divorce or, I, I mean, it's really, really hard. These are hard. This is, this, at least to me, is a hard topic that gets lumped into big, big, big societal topics. That, but the difference is that this is one that's like, hiding in plain sight it's it's but it's invisible right it's not as visible as all of the other big things happening but we know it's all around us and so I feel like this really important conversation that we had today that you all are continuing to have with your school district is is just very sobering so thank you for having it with us we're, we we really are just so grateful thank you, thank you for having us thank you so much thank you Thank you so much for listening, literacy lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes. And 
please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com is our email address. And we love getting emails from you all. And <laughs> Lori we and really I really read them. Yeah, and we, we really, really respond. Fun. We just love, we love when you all reach out and we, we get to have conversations with you. So please, please email yep. us. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're thinking about literacy, what you're thinking about. Ideas for us to podcast about. Yes, ideas for <laughs> podcasting, anything. We, we love to hear from you what you liked, what you want. Yeah, We're here for you. Mostly y'all are asking questions, which is great. Yes. <laughs> we don't mind that either. Yes. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.